What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Food360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio. Does my pasta taste different when I'm speaking Italian? It might well because it frames your expectations and expectations make a difference to flavor. Have you heard of super tasters? Yes. You have? Yes. Do you know if you're a super taster? No. You don't know? No. I don't believe in super tasters. You you don't? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. I've been cooking for 30 years, everywhere from Paris to Italy to Monte Carlo and here in New York City. I've worked at and owned a number of restaurants. Some you might know, some you might not. Le Cirque, Cellar in the Sky, Le Miraville, Leila, Ditch Plains, Landmark. But my experience as a judge on Food Network's Chopped for the past 10 years has really piqued my curiosity in food culture. I love everything about food. I watch a lot of documentaries. I read plenty of books. And now on my day off, I'm spending it with you guys in the studio talking about food. There's a story behind every meal, a story behind the person who makes it, a story behind each ingredient. And I want to know everything. So pull up a seat. Let's dig in. Today, we're going to discuss flavor. It's a subject I'm very interested in. After all, I titled my first cookbook, Season with Authority. So I asked Bob Holmes and Gail Simmons to join me. You just heard them at the beginning of the show. First, I sat down with Bob. He's a science writer who spent years researching and interviewing experts for his book, Flavor, the Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show here. You bet. My pleasure. Let's start talking about your book. Why do you think flavor is the most neglected sense? I think one of the big reasons that flavor doesn't get the attention that it probably deserves is that it's so hard to talk about. We don't have the vocabulary. Most of the flavor of a food comes not from taste itself, which is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, which we actually have words for, but most of it is is to do with, with a sense of smell. And we don't have words for smell. If you're describing what something smells like, it's all by analogy. Well, it smells like lemon, smells like 
mint. And we just don't have the objective words. If you're talking about colors, you can say, well, you know, the Swedish flag is blue and yellow. You don't have to say that it's sky-like and lemon-like. And that makes it so much easier. That's really interesting. And, and I can just hear my little kids, if they taste something, and they're like, yuck. They don't give you a description of what it tastes like. It's actually very, very true. So understanding flavor, flavor and taste are not the same thing. Can you explain how that works? Flavor is really the whole experience that happens when you have food in your mouth. Uh, it's about taste, you know, those five sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. And it's about the smell of the food, which is, again, carries most of the characteristics. But it's also about texture. It's about feelings of hot and cold. You know, sound figures in, expectation figures in. You know, if I serve you two glasses of the same wine and I tell you one's expensive and one's cheap, you're going to like the glass that I told you was expensive better, even though it's the very same wine. And that's because of expectation. And the same sort of thing happens for strawberry mousse, I think, tastes sweeter on a white plate than it does on a black plate. Probably because you can see the redness stands out better against the white plate. That makes you expect it to taste sweeter and strawberry or... Wow. One of my personal experiences is I grew up in Italy, you know, and I would be sitting in the countryside in Italy. As a kid, I always ate Nutella on a toasted country bread. I would bring that exact same Nutella back to America and find a very good country bread in America and have the same breakfast in an apartment in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like it. I was like, this doesn't taste right. I think I'm in the wrong frame of mind. Yep. I'm in the wrong place. I don't have the same oxygen around me. I don't know what it is, but I'm not eating this anymore. The expectations are different. Yeah. The whole, the context is different and context seems to be really, really important. So it really comes down to expectations in people's brains, the way they work. That's a big part of it. That's pretty wild. So what about the deal with cilantro? Now, two people can eat the exact same ingredient. We're just talking an ingredient here for flavor, like cilantro. I love cilantro. I have hmm. friends of mine that think it tastes like a bar of soap. Where's that coming from? Part of it is genetic. It turns out that, you know, there's a particular odor receptor if you want to be technical, it's OR6A2 uh, that's broken in some people and not in others. And people with one version of this OR6A2 are more likely to like cilantro than people with the other version. And so part of it's genetic, but it's not a very big part. That explains only you know, less than, I think they said, less than 10% of the difference in people. So mostly it's probably expectation. The first time you ate cilantro, did it? surprise you and startle you. I mean, you know, maybe you don't much care for that experience, and that's colored everything ever since. Well, that's funny, because I, I grew up in Europe, and I didn't have cilantro, and when I came to America, and I was like, wait, why haven't I had this? I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. So let's go on to, like, food pairing, and I guess there's some science behind that. I know that fried chicken and champagne are one of those things that go really, really well together, and it's pretty obvious to me because of the fattiness of the fried chicken and the acidity level of champagne. The acid cuts through the, the fattiness, and I think it's a perfect match. Is there science behind all this besides just acid and fat? There's some. Tannin and fat is another one that there's good scientific evidence for. Uh, so a, a big tannic red wine goes really well with a big, rich, fatty beefsteak. You know, the tannin helps to clear the fat off the tongue, and the fat helps to tame the tannins. And so alternating bites of rich steak with sips of tannic wine actually really does work well together, and that is scientifically shown. So it's like a little ballet on your palate. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, there's the whole food and wine pairing. And I always get this every time I do a food and wine dinner. And I've got, you know, as I call them, the cork dorks, the, the, the sommeliers mm -hmm. of the world. You know, we're doing a food and wine dinner, no artichokes and no asparagus. It's, it's as if 
I'm committing, uh, you know, one of the seven sins if I put an asparagus on the menu with one of their wines. <laughs> Are there any other ingredients? And why is that, by the way? Because I, I just do it and I just say, okay, I won't use asparagus or artichokes. Am I okay or should I fight them? I would fight them over the asparagus. I like wine with asparagus. The thing with artichokes is apparently it's a idiosyncratic thing. One of the compounds in artichokes activates sweet receptors so that it makes the wine that you sip afterward taste sweeter. And that plays really badly with, especially with red wine. Really? Wow. Okay. So I'm going to have to give them the artichokes. Unless they have a wine that they want to taste sweeter, I'll tell them that this wine's not sweet enough. Should we have an artichoke with it? <laughs> I like a nice acid white wine with artichokes. Oh, I mean, cooking my artichokes in white wine is my favorite way to go, and a little bit of mint. Ooh. Like the Romans do it. Ooh. You know, for me, I, I love, I, I think there's a way to unlock certain flavors. And when I cook white beans, for example, I always put a couple fillets of anchovies in there because I feel like the anchovies give it a little bit of background, a little bit of depth. You know how they describe red wine as having a little terroir? Well, I feel as though anchovies are one of those ingredients that give a little terroir to certain dishes. And obviously in Asian food, they use fish sauce, which is pretty much, you know, liquid anchovy. As far as I'm concerned, I love the flavor that it gives. Mm -hmm. Knowing things like that, does it make you a better cook if you can if you can come up with things like this? A, a little at least. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about anchovies and fish sauce is it adds umami, which is basically the flavor of, of decomposing proteins of aged foods, aged meats, olives, cheese, all of that stuff has umami because it's aged. And in the aging process, there's some decomposition going on. And so it adds, that, that gives the depth and complexity. And so knowing that, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of anchovies and beans, but I'm going to try that next pot of beans I make. And that's why people like aged steak, I guess, so much too, right? That's going to bring it because it's decomposing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh -huh. So I want us to also talk about these people that are called super tasters. Yeah. And I guess there's, uh, what is it, 25% of the population are super tasters? So if you're a super taster, is that good or is it bad? That's a kind of an it depends. <laughs> super tasters basically are people with more taste buds on their tongue. So they get a, a more intense experience of the food. And for many people, that means they're really picky. I am apparently also a super taster, but okay. I'm also food adventurous. I uh, spoke to a researcher who said she thinks there's two kinds of super tasters. There's the not adventurous ones. Those are the picky ones. And then the adventurous ones. Yes, it's intense. The experience is intense, but that's okay because we're, sort of, we're sort of seeking that. I presumably have a more intense experience of bitter than the average person, but I still, you know, I drink my coffee black and I like the hoppiest beer I can find. And, you know, my favorite green is rapini, which is about as bitter as you can get for greens. So some super tasters are just lazy and they don't want to go through the exercise of having all these powerful flavors in their mouth. So they just become bland eaters. And, and you're one of the examples of people that are like, oh, wow, I want to experience broccoli, Rob. I want to experience a, a lemon or you want to experience these things. So so there's two different types of super tasters. I love that. It's probably more complicated than that psychologically. I put milk in my tea because tea without milk is just too intense, the tannicness of it. I tend not to like the most acidic apples because that's just a little too intense for me. It's not a black and white thing. Right. 
Well, you were just talking about drinking tea, and I'm a big tea drinker most of the day, and I'll just drink espresso like after lunch or after a nice mm-hmm. meal or after dinner. But for me, if I ever go, you ever go to those hotels or the you know in a hotel lobby, and there's the big pot of coffee and there's the big pot of hot water, and mm-hmm. so I'll take my tea bag and I'll I'll make my tea with the hot water. If there's ever been coffee in that pot, I can't drink the tea because I can taste the coffee in the background, and it's amazing to me that people don't understand that. And people look at me like I'm a little crazy, like, well, there's hot water in there. What's the matter with you? I mean, I don't know if that makes me a super taster. But- it might mean you're a super taster. It might mean that you're particularly sensitive to some particular aroma compound in coffee. So the next thing I want to talk about is traveling. And I travel a lot. I try all the cuisines. Can you explain to me why there's whole continents out there? They have this thing for breakfast called Marmite. They slather it on a piece of toast in the morning, and I would, if I was to ever put that on my menu here in America, I think I would be thrown out of the country. I don't know anybody in America that would eat this, and I certainly, I mean, I and I try everything. I like everything. I've tried my damnedest. I can't eat the stuff. What, what what's with that? It's tradition and experience. We haven't here in North America haven't grown up acculturated to Marmite. And therefore, it's not part of what we eat. It's like it's hard to find a North American that would eat natto, which is the you know the Japanese fermented soybean dish that looks like a bowl of snot, actually. <laughs> the Japanese love it, and most North Americans have a really hard time with it. And conversely, uh, we all eat cheese. Well, most of us love cheese. And it's a hard sell, at least until recently, in Asia, because it's, it's, you know, it's this spoiled milk product that's smells and tastes rancid, and why would anyone eat that stuff? And that's almost entirely experience, tradition, upbringing, what you're used to culturally. You're right. It's one of those tradition things. You just have to sort of build up to eating it. So I guess one last question for you, and I think everybody that's listening probably wants to know, um, you're obviously the expert on flavor. Is there anything we can do to improve our, our flavor? Do we have to choose slower? Especially as a chef of myself, I want to know, is there something that I can do to improve my, my sort of detection of flavor so I can make better food for my customers? The short answer is pay attention, but you're already doing that as a chef. And trying to find ways to articulate the differences between flavor experiences. You know, there have been studies of wine professionals that show that they're not any better than the rest of us at actual perception. Their noses are no more delicate, no more sensitive than the rest of us. They just have better access to vocabulary. They've practiced so they can recognize and articulate the difference between cherry and blackberry and raspberry flavors in a wine. And we could do that too, most of us, but we, we just don't have the experience at it. So just pay attention and, and keep trying. And expand on your vocabulary, I guess. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining me and talking about this. We're going to work on our flavor detection over here. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be right back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. 
Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach, How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Food 360. Many of you may know my next guest is one of the original judges on Bravo's Top Chef. Gail Simmons began her food career after attending what is now known as the Institute of Culinary Education in New York. She trained in the kitchens of Le Cirque and Vong before working for Vogue magazine's food critic Jeffrey Steingarten and then for Daniel Boulud. Since 2004, she's been the special project director at Food & Wine magazine. Well, Gail, thank you very much for uh, for being here. Thank the, you, Mark. In, in the studio. It's very exciting. I'm very happy to be here. I'm always happy to see you. Um, so you, you're from Canada. Yes. And you started writing in the newspaper. Was it at your school first? Is that At first, it was at my university. When I was in college, I started writing for the school paper restaurant reviews, not because I wanted to be a restaurant critic, although I guess I did, but I didn't really think that was necessarily a viable career choice. I did it because I thought it was really fun and no one else was doing it. And I just saw the whole and I went to McGill University in Montreal and it is an incredible city for eating. It has always been, I think, by far the best food city in Canada, if not one of the best in North America. It is an incredible place to eat and drink. And I wanted all of my fellow students to know about this sort of cool, out of the way, interesting ethnic and diverse restaurants in the city. So I took it upon myself to do some exploring. I didn't get paid for it. All the money came out of my own pocket for my meals. And I was eating at like cheap little ethnic joints. But there's so much good food that I found a lot of fun things to write about. But then you went from being a writer and then you moved to New York and then you started working in kitchens. Right. You worked at Le Cirque, right? I did. Well, I was a writer in Toronto for a year. You know, I was an assistant editor and I was an intern at a bunch of magazines and newspapers in Canada. And when I decided that food was my thing and that was where I wanted to focus all my attention, I realized that I actually didn't know that much about food just because I liked to eat didn't really make me a food writer. And how was I going to sort of differentiate myself? So I took some advice from a food editor and quit my job in Canada, moved here and went to culinary school. And I did a full year, you know, of the professional culinary program at what is now ICE. Wait, did you go to Peter Kump's? Yes. Was I went, it, it was yes, called Peter yes, Kump's yes, then? it was Peter Kump's then, of it course. Was, I went to there as well. It was there called you, Peter Kump's New York, New York Cooking, Cooking school, school, and it was on 91st Street and New York Avenue. So I was the first class in their next location, the 23rd Street location, and then 
when I had to leave and do an apprenticeship, at first I was like, well, I'm just going to go be a food writer now. I'll just go get an internship at Gourmet Magazine or something. And they convinced me to stay in the kitchen for a little while. So from there, I went to Le Cirque as my very first job out of culinary school. And who was the chef at Le Cirque? Sota Kuhn. Sota Kuhn was the yes. chef. Oh, so you were there after me because I was there under Sylvain Porte, who had left, I guess, by that time. Yes, yes, I guess so. And then I went to Peter Kump's when it was on the Upper East Side still. Right. And I remember we had it was parallel not, lives. It was not a year course. It was a three-month course, and I called it the professional housewife cooking school because I was the only one who got a job in the cooking industry really? after I left. It, it was, was hilarious. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, it really changed. No, mine was, was I think, an eight-month course, like a, you know, a school year, basically. And then I had to do this apprenticeship, and I stayed cooking for a little longer. So, so you must have some good stories, as do I, about I do. our good Cirque, friend Sota Kuhn. He didn't look me in the eye for a long time. I, he didn't really acknowledge that well, I existed. <laughs> that is part of it. We used to call him, I mean, he was an extraordinary cook, don't get me wrong, a very fascinating man from Cambodia, and an incredibly talented chef. But we used to call him the shark, did you? Because we all wore toques in the kitchen. You know, the really old school, round, professional chef hats in the kitchen. And he was the only one who wore one that was different. His came to a point <laughs> at the top. And he was very small. So he would sort of weave in and out of all of the other toques in the kitchen like a little shark weaving through the water. So we all called him the shark. That was very funny. Those, <laughs> those are some good times. I, I, I really loved working in that restaurant. That was a lot of And it was an fun. amazing kitchen. What an enormous kitchen, too. It was hard for me. I was the only woman in the kitchen, and it was, you know, formative for sure, but it was not an easy place it's for, for yes. girls back then. It was, it was never an easy place. I remember... Well, a lot of stories. We, yes. could, we could have a whole other podcast that about is that. That is true. <laughs> so your cookbook, uh, it was inspired by travel and your upbringing. And flavors, to me, have memories. They have thoughts of the past. Yes. But how did you take all those thoughts and those memories of traveling and childhood and so on and so forth and uh, and, and recreate the recipes and put them in your book? Because it's it's all about flavor in the end, right? It absolutely is. And what's funny is that memory played such a huge role in this book, particularly. It's called Bringing It Home. And the original simple concept of the book was to talk about all of these incredible experiences I've been able to have through the course of my career, starting with my childhood and the travel I did as a child. My father's from South Africa. My mother's from Canada. But they spent a lot of time traveling. We spent a lot of time in Southern Africa growing up. My father's family then moved to Australia. So, you know, we have this very international family. And then moving into my adulthood, serendipitously, I've spent so much of my adulthood on the road because of my job. And then ultimately, I come home inspired and I take a lot of notes while I'm traveling and I come home and want to cook it. And I end up adapting and creating recipes out of those memories. I, I always have the whole thing with memory and food. I remember being a kid in the south of France and my parents took me to a very fancy restaurant called La Chevre d'Or, which is still mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And there was a raspberry souffle there that to me was like eating the most beautiful cloud, yes. raspberry flavored cloud in I the world. I can imagine. And I can still remember sitting there going, I, I need another one. And they're like, oh, well, you have to order at the beginning of the meal. It takes right. so long to make it. And so, and I was devastated. And to this day, I'm almost scared to go back and have it. Yes. And, and I know it's still on the menu because I Google it every once in a while and I see that thing is still there. It's like an ex-girlfriend. It's so perfect in my mind. Mm -hmm. I don't want to ruin it. Did you ever it's find true. it? Did you yes. find in your cookbook, that you're like, oh, I really want to make this recipe. And you make it and you're like, oh, it's not as good as I remember it. I definitely built up in my mind several of the recipes that I'd had in the past and I put into my book. But when I went to develop them, I developed them as I remembered them. 
just as perfectly and just as magically. So the truth is how they are in my book compared to how they really are, if you maybe go back to that place and eat them, are very different because I'm remembering them in this sort of pristine way, which isn't necessarily truth. I actually have, to bring it all home, I have that exact recipe about a blackberry souffle from Le Cirque. When I was cooking at Le Cirque, you know, we'd have long days, long nights, and once in a while, if I had a particularly difficult night on the line, I would sneak back into the pastry kitchen, and Jacques Torres was the pastry chef at the time, and he wouldn't necessarily hang out with me, but I remember it so vividly that that blackberry souffle was this perfect, extraordinary dessert. They would make a little hole in it for me, pour the creme anglaise inside, And years later, when I wrote my first book, I recreated that blackberry souffle, and I called Jacques Torres, who many years later I had become friendly with, and he had gone on, obviously, to become a a chocolate emperor. So we spent a day together and made blackberry souffles, and of course they were perfect, but he didn't remember them being sort of as exalted as I did. He was like, yeah, no problem, I'll make you blackberry souffle. I don't even really remember making them at Le Cirque. He's like, I'm sure I did, but sure, whatever you say. Yeah, I I remember those very well. To me, they were the only thing that mattered, yeah. Oh, boy. So when you're judging food, I think you said once before, there's taste, there's flavor. Flavor, but it's also it's a personal thing, right? Yes. So how is it when you're when you're judging on the show? You're like, okay, the flavors are where they're supposed to be, but I don't really like the taste. I mean, how do you how do you sort of balance that? I get this question a lot, as I'm sure you do. Judging food has become this job, this very recent phenomenon. Really, I guess since like Iron Chef Japan and then Top Chef. Right. And when I talk to people about judging, they get frustrated often because they're like, food is so subjective. And I often tell them that it's about understanding, is the meat cooked to the proper doneness in terms of the cut that this person used? And did they treat it the way it should have been treated to bring out the best flavor? Is it seasoned well? Which is to say, was there enough salt to bring out the flavor, but not too much to overpower or any spices that they use? Is it in balance? Is there a counterpoint? Is there a textural component? All of these pieces to me make up the success of a dish. And of course there's subjectivity, but truthfully, I'm able to separate for the most part my personal likes and dislikes from if a dish is successful in its preparation and judge if it has merit. And I think a lot of it also comes from the chef's intention. I think you're absolutely right. Their story sometimes does tell how and when and why they put it together. And also on top of that, you have to have a poker face sometimes, right? Oh, absolutely. Is that what you have to, you, you can't give away you... your hand all the time. Although we are encouraged on our show, they really want to show authentically the experience. And I, I appreciate that our producers allow us to be ourselves. I mean, we can't make it completely obvious if there's one dish that's terrible and everyone else is good because then everyone changes the channel, as you know. But we are encouraged to engage with them in those moments and talk about when the food is really great or when the food needs help or what these major issues are. But in terms of finding the energy and the articulation of food, our producers are always telling us just that, you know, we need description because telling someone that food is great or amazing this is amazing, that doesn't actually tell them anything. I've I've seen shows like that where I want to reach through the television and go, okay, I get you like it, but tell me what it is you're eating because I need to know exactly what's happening. Right, that's it. So it it becomes a real mental exercise in finding new ways to describe food a hundred times a day in a way that if you are sitting on your couch, you'll understand and believe the judges. Because as you well know, if you don't believe the judges or trust their taste 
then you're also turning the channel and the whole thing falls apart. I hope they're trusting us by now. We've been doing this I for know, so a long. A real long time. You know, something else I want to talk about is, is sort of the science. I feel like if people are going to understand the science of cooking, they're going to have an easier time being a better cook. I mean, for example, for me, I feel like a lot of people just don't season their food enough. I, and people always say, they see me season a steak when I'm at home and they're like, wow, that's a lot of salt. I'm like, you have to season it before. You can't season it afterwards. If you put enough salt and pepper on the outside of your steak and give it a good sear or grilling it, mm-hmm. where if you grill it, half the salt falls off and it goes on the grill. So you have to, I always tell people, season your steak the way you normally would, then do it again. Yeah. And then cook it. And I know. See it the makes difference. people very nervous to see professional cooks seasoning food. My mother is, what's interesting about my mother and I is, although she's a great cook, we actually don't cook together because we have these arguments. Because I guess I have like a professional perspective. And she's a great cook, but, you know, she comes from that sort of 80s cooking mentality of like salt is the devil. And understandably, if you are predisposed to heart disease, high cholesterol, all those things, but most people are very afraid to season their food, but then they'll go to restaurants and wonder why the food is like so good. And so it is understanding the scientific reasoning behind doing things a certain way, techniques, the reason that you sear a piece of meat first before you braise it, for example, or the reason that you want to cook eggs at a certain temperature or for a certain amount of minutes if you're boiling them. My favorite, caramelization. I mean, vegetables get seared. People are like, oh, it's burnt. No, it's not. It's caramelizing. Leave it alone. (laughs) And it's about sugar, right? And understanding sugar content and mylar effect and all of these things that are actually science. I mean, it's chemistry. It is protein and fat and heat and what happens when those things are combined. And so I'm not saying that I am fluent in all aspects of the scientific process, but I do think that having that professional background and understanding action and reaction in the kitchen and the reason why you want to do things in a certain order really helped me understand how to cook food well. And explain it well in turn because exactly. of that. Well, we, we have to explain it. That's right. The next thing I want to talk about, and have you heard of super tasters? Yes. You have? Yes. Are, are, do you know if you're a super taster? No. You don't know? No. Well, you know, there's a little test we could do. We uh, can do that right here. Great. You're excited about that? I'm curious. I haven't done it either. I don't. I don't believe in super tasters. You, you don't? I don't know. Let's see. All right. Well, Let's look, see. Th- there's a little piece of paper. The directions are right here. Put the strip on your tongue. After a few seconds, remove the strip from your mouth. How does it taste? You ready? And we're going to do it at the same time. Okay. I'm going to be ready with my water or my tea right here because I'm just, I'm a little worried. I mean, what's it supposed to taste like? That I, is nerve wracking. No. All right. Let, let, let's All right, do it. All right, here we you go. Ready? Go. Yeah. What'd you get? <clears throat> Intense bitterness. Yeah, me too. So it says here non taster. <clears throat> Hold on. I need a sip. Wow. Yeah, that's real bitter. Uh-huh. A non-taster will taste nothing. A taster will detect a mild bitter or bland taste, and a super taster will find the paper extremely bitter. So I guess... High uh, five. Here we go. Hold on. <laughs> Good thing we do what we do, Mark. I mean... <laughs> we were born for this. I'm surprised they didn't give us this test before they gave us our jobs it's at the t- on the television set. So now there's something else interesting going on right here in the studio. Every episode, we play a game with our guests, and since we're talking about flavor today, we thought, let's do a chip taste test. We've got five bowls in front of us here, and I don't know what's in any of them. They look good. Let's see what this one is. It's number one. This is taro chip. I can tell you that. It's a taro. That's it. It's just a salted taro chip. I love this game, by the way. All right, let's try this one. This one looks like it's it's a ruffled potato chip. It's got a nice suntan color. 
Oh. What is that? It could be what Canadians call all dressed, but I think it's probably like a, I don't know, like a barbecue. Really? A roasted chicken wing? Oh, wow. Where the heck did we find that? It's like wine. Like if you say I taste leather shoes, I'm going to taste leather shoes. There's maybe some roast chicken in there. Sure. I'll take it. it. It's ridiculous. Now this one here is a curly thing that, you know, when you go to a Japanese restaurant and they cut the calamari with small little crisscrosses, or it could be like something that you'd use in plumbing. (laughs) I love the texture. That's like a shrimp chip of some kind because you're getting that like light. You're definitely right. There's shrimp It's rice. You get those in Vietnamese restaurants. Mm -hmm. They're all usually like different colors. Adore them. But those have no flavor. This has a little more flavor than that. This has a little bit of a like barbecue-y. It's like a little barbecue-y. You're really into these. You're going for seconds. This texture is awesome. Like look how beautiful. They're kind of crazy looking. Um, The reveal? Mm. Squid. Squid. All right. Now we're going to go to number four. It's you like guys a, can hear me sniffing it. Sour cream. It's like and a ruffled onion. potato. Yeah, it's like a sour cream and onion. I bet. Mm-mm. Oh no! The wow! Hell is that? Oh, I like it. Ooh, it's coming at me from all angles. It's, it's like thick cut. It's ruffly, with like a but wasabi horseradish it's like situation. Sa- but there's a little sour note mm-hmm. backing up on the other side, on the on the side of the tongue there. It's like sour cream wasabi or sour cream horseradish or something awesome. Oh wait a minute! I want to eat a whole bag of those. Where are these coming from? Wasabi Ranch. Wow, Wasabi you're good. Wasabi Ranch, you're guys. Good. Wow. That is a big discovery. Okay, we got another ruffled one with green specks. Oh, I smell dill. Mm-hmm. That's the green specks. That's of dill. the good stuff. That's the money right there. That's a dill pickle chip. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It is good. It's like a deep fried pickle. Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? Dill pickle. It's just dill pickle. It tastes like a deep That's fried pickle. That's my jam right there. That right there. I'm just going to. You just keep, keep those these right here. there. Oh, boy. That was a surprise for everybody. Thank you. What a treat. For dream. everybody. That was really something else. That was else. a good midday snack. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Thank I'm you, Mark. Glad you put up with the chip tasting. Oh, and, I love the chip tasting. I didn't love fun. all the chips, but yeah. I love the chip tasting. Thank time. you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed talking about flavor. I hope you guys got something out of it. I'm excited to share the rest of the season with you. We're going to explore food culture from every angle, from the hidden messages you never knew were on the menu to what happens behind the scenes at restaurants. Plus, we're going to be joined by some of my closest friends in the industry, like Marcus Samuelson, Melissa Clark, Jonathan Waxman, and so many more. Also, Bob Holmes, Gail Simmons, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'll see you next week. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpenter, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Etor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Bethann Macaluso and Kara Weissenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mengesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 